Welcome to Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints, where your viewpoint matters. Donnell discusses today's major issues and concerns with nationally recognized expert guests, as well as a variety of other interesting topics. So call and express your viewpoint about this week's topic or whatever else may be of concern to you. Just call Donnell at 563-999-3660 to share your viewpoint. Now, with this week's guest, here is your viewpoint host, Donnell Edwards. Welcome, welcome everybody to Donnell Edwards Viewpoints. Hope you had a great day today and that you're going to have a fantastic evening. Uh, thank you for joining us. I am your host, Donnell Edwards. And before we get started, I want to mention one thing. This is May, and at the CWR Talk Network, we're celebrating Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. So we invite you to visit our homepage on our website. That's cwrtalknetwork.com. And watch the very informative video, The Making of Asian America, a History, featuring renowned Asian American historian, author, and University of Minnesota professor, Dr. Erica Lee. Also, if you click on the We're Celebrating Asian Pacific American Heritage Month banner at the top of the homepage, that will take you to our May newsletter, which has more information about Asian Pacific American history. We encourage all of our listeners to join us in celebrating Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Now, right now, uh, tonight on our program, uh, we're discussing surviving foster care and domestic violence and how it changed my life for the better, which is really a testament to the power <laughs> of determination and courage and the human spirit. It helps all of us see what's possible when we resolve not to give up and to persist in our efforts to overcome whatever unfavorable circumstances we may find ourselves in. Our special guest this evening has endured and overcome much, and without revealing all that has happened to her in her life, uh, she is a survivor of an abusive relationship, was the product of the foster care system. She is an indie author and has written and published eight books. She has a series, uh, OK Picture This. She has two in that series and is currently working on the third. However, the thing that is most impressive about her is how she has channeled all of the negative things in her life in a manner that has resulted in an unbelievable amount of good and positive works, which we will discuss uh, during the course of the evening. So please join me in welcoming to Donnell Edwards Viewpoints, Miss Lisa Orban. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on your show. Thank you. Now, Lisa, uh, what motivated you to share your life, especially very personal experiences in your life and your books? Honestly, it was my friends. Uh, for years, I've entertained them with the tragedies of my life because I can make almost anything funny. And they started to encourage me to, to share those stories and write a book about it. And years it took them years to convince me to do this but i sat down one day and i started to write and i haven't stopped since 
it, I, I think the, I, I think we all make a lot of mistakes, and and it's something that we can all relate to, and some we can laugh out loud about, and some we can't, but we can all share that familiar feeling of uh oh, and in that moment of connection, you don't feel so alone, and and I think that's why a lot of people um, like my books and why it resonates so much with with so many people is because I I, I share my mistakes, I don't gloss them over, and um, but yeah, my friends. It was them. You can blame it all on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, that, that's a good way to look at things, too, when you have adversity in your life. Because when you share that those experiences, you never know who, who may be listening, who may read what you have to say, mm-hmm. and the, the impact that it may have on them. And we're going to talk about the impact that you've had on a lot of people as we go along <laughs> in the program. Now, you, you've experienced so much in your life, Lisa. Why don't you just give us a brief overview of your life so we can better understand just who Lisa Orban is? Okay, so uh, we're going to gloss over almost 50 years of living real quick. <laughs> I was born in Galesburg, in Galesburg, Illinois. Um, my parents were divorced before I was born. Uh, my mom remarried when I was very young, and her new husband adopted me. We moved to Quincy. And that's uh, before I turned two, and that's pretty much where I grew up most of my life. Uh, my parents had a few more divorces, a few more marriages, a couple more siblings were added along the way. Um, things kind of bounced around for a while. And then quite unexpectedly, I found myself placed in foster care when I was 16. Uh, when I turned 18, I ran away to Phoenix with a friend of mine, Cindy, and I lived there for three years. I, while I was in Phoenix, I got married. I had two sons. I made some mistakes. I always make mistakes. Um, And then I ran away from my life back to Quincy. Um, And once I got back to Quincy, I put my life back together. I went to college. I earned an associate's degree in psychology. I married and I divorced uh, several more times. I raised five kids. I bought a house. And eventually I settled down to live the kind of life I've always wanted, which is quite honestly the ringleader in a madhouse of anarchy. Uh, I write now. I write. I do. It, it is. It is chaos here. Um, I now write books, and I take in human strays in need of help, and I travel as much and as often as I can, and I live a life that I enjoy right now. And overall, I'm I'm pretty happy about it. So that's me in under you know under a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> a very good job. Good job. Now you you, you kind of touched on this this next question a little in your your comments. Uh, about your family. You describe your family as, as dysfunctional. Uh, can you elaborate <laughs> on that a little more? Explain what, what you mean by that. Oh, yeah. Um, listen, m- my parents were, for the most part, good people. They were terrible parents. Um, they made a lot, they, they just were. I mean, they made a lot of mistakes. They fought a lot even after they divorced, and, and they didn't seem to know how to cope well with their own life and and that left me alone a lot and doing things on my own um my mom bounced around a lot in this endless chaos of looking for someone to bring order to her life and my dad went the exact opposite and he retreated into this strict order and and he was just almost unable to cope with anything that came up unexpectedly and and i don't want people to think i i don't love my parents because i do but they were not functional adults you know for all the the, the fact that they held jobs and I was never homeless because of any of this, but 
you know, there was just the swirling chaos that was always going on in, in this very much push and pull, and, and I really couldn't depend on either one of them while I was growing up. And, you know, there were times where there was no food in the house because my mom would forget, you know, to, to, to go shopping, and the lights were turned off for the same reason, and, and we moved endlessly around town as my mom was, like, forever looking for this the perfect place, the perfect life, and the perfect man to spend it with. And my dad kind of lived this life that was so rigid that, I mean, he would just, he would never vary from the path, even that he had chosen, even if it was the wrong one. I mean, he would just plow ahead heedless, you know, whatever fallout it created because he was, he was on it, man. He was going down that road. And uh, I want to say with age, they both, they both mellowed towards a more healthy middle path, but, but growing up, it wasn't what you would call functional. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what what was it in, in, in particular, though, in, in your life that resulted in you getting into foster care? Well, when I was 15, um, I was bribed by my dad to move in with him with, this, with all these promises of food and stability. And unfortunately, I realized too late that I had made the wrong choice. I had basically exchanged a full, full larder for an empty life. Um, my dad, you know, like I said, was very strict, and he believed in order and unquestioning compliance. But, you know, I had lived, you know, for years and years, I had lived, you know, taking care of myself and making my own decisions and, you know, reminding my own self to go to school and do my homework and, and, and all these things. And I, it was too late for me to be now treated again as if I was a small child. And, um, you know, and, and him trying to gain control over me, to turn me, to kind of mold me, he uh, he curdled and cut off, you know, visits. I wasn't allowed to visit my family, you know, go to the movies or do anything that wasn't under his direct supervision. And uh, even under, even when I went to school, I was under his, his eye because he was the juvenile officer assigned to my school. So I was never really, you know, I was never given any freedom whatsoever to make any choices. Um, he allowed me 10 minutes of freedom each day to walk around the block as long as I wasn't grounded, which I almost always was because of something. And so I spent almost all of my time sitting in a chair in my bedroom looking out the window, and that's all I did. And eventually it came to a head when I stopped caring about the consequences since I was always in trouble. And I snuck out of the house to meet with a boy, and I was picked up by the police. And while I was at the police station, my dad gave me an ultimatum. You know, one of those that's, you know, the, the scared straight moments that parents think is going to work mm-hmm. while you're you know, yeah. sitting in a police yeah. station. Yeah. I declined. <laughs> I politely <laughs> declined. And uh, 24 hours later, I found myself in foster care. And um, I was in four foster homes in three different cities in two years um, until I turned 18. And um, I had two really good foster homes. I had one really awful one. And I had uh, one that was bearable if irritating. And uh, and the sad thing is, really what foster care taught me more than anything else, it was that I was disposable. Um, and it wasn't just me. I mean, we were all disposable. All my foster brothers and sisters were. You know, we weren't treated or considered like real kids, I guess. You know, and it didn't, we didn't matter as much. And we weren't considered valuable as a person. And you know, generally, you know, the courts treated us with indifference, not really caring what we thought or what how we felt about anything. And, you know, we're thought of as a number by caseworkers. And, and it was really only the, the really lucky ones, you know, that found a foster parent that, that didn't think of you as a source of income that they kept around until it became inconvenient. 
And um, honestly, to this day, I, I have no love for the foster care system. You know, they, they, they say a lot of things that, you know, we're doing this for the sake of the kids, and they tell the kids we're doing this for your own good. You know, but after being in the foster care system and, and, and being around other foster kids and listening to their stories, um, the fact is, is very few kids feel like they're being helped or that this is for their own good. I mean, and if you ask them what they really want, they'll tell you they want to turn 18 so they can just run away from foster care and never come back. You know, I mean, there are some exceptions to this rule. There are some good foster parents. I was lucky enough that I had two of them. Um, but the fact is, is they are few and they are far between, and it's it's really a broken system. So it was it was rough. It was very very rough. Well, you know that that brings up a couple of uh, things to my mind. Uh, I had a guest on, and we did a show on the broken foster care system. And as you know, things have not changed for the better Mm-mm. today any more than they were when uh, you were in foster care. And then I had another guest on, and we did a, a show on uh, sex trafficking in America. And I was shocked during that show to find out that the majority of the young people that are being sex trafficked have come through the foster care system. And oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it did me. I was, I was just, uh, I was just shocked to find that out. So. There are some serious issues there that we uh, we really need to yes. address. Now, uh, it, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, even now, I mean, it, it, even the sad thing is, is once these kids turn 18, most of them don't have a family or a support network to go home to. They're, you know, they turn 18 and they're like, okay, you're on your own, bye, and they just toss you out, you know, sink or swim, and, and you know, and that's why a lot of them fail. They just they don't have you know, they, they've been moved around so much, and, and, and they, they don't have those connections, those friendships, those any stability, so they just flounder. They, they don't know what to do with their life, and especially because foster care makes sure that you don't have free choice, you don't have free will, you, you can't make decisions, you're not allowed to do anything on your own without court supervision, that once they turn 18, they have no coping mechanisms, none. So it's it's bad. <laughs> Yeah, I know that that was another thing we discussed in that show on uh, the foster care system, how that when young people age out, that feeds into the homeless problem that we have mm-hmm. in the United States, especially among young people. Now, I want to get back to one, one thing. You, you talked about some of the foster, foster homes that you had mm-hmm. and some of the foster parents. I, I watched your video, uh, your YouTube video, and you talked uh, very highly of uh, one of your foster parents and Mm -hmm. I just wonder uh, did she have an effect on you that has caused you to go in the direction that you have uh, with Mm -hmm. the humanitarian work that you do absolutely Um, Eula Eula Jean Phillips God love her soul she passed away a few years ago Um, and, and I stayed in touch with her for my entire life and, um, you know, I see her kids on occasion, but uh, she was a wonderful woman. And when I walked into her her home, she she welcomed me. And, and the one thing she said was, you have a clean slate. You know, whatever happened before in the past doesn't matter. You know, only what matters is, is what you do now. And, and she meant it. And, and she treated us, you know, like her own. And it was very, very rare. I mean, exceptionally rare. 
um, to have happen in the foster care system. Um, she was kind of, even among other foster kids, where even when I was moved to other cities and stuff, you know, they talked of her as a, you know, almost this living legend, this woman that actually cared. So um, she, at her funeral, there was foster kids came from all over to say goodbye to her, me being among them. So, you know, she was, she's a very special woman. Okay. And you, you are also, and I, I kind of felt like she may have had been a powerful influence in your life. Now, in, in addition mm-hmm. to everything else that uh, you have endured, uh, you got married, you mentioned that, and mm-hmm. during the, this, this first marriage, uh, you experienced uh, abuse in the marriage. So how long did, did the marriage last and you experienced the abuse, and at what point did you decide to get out and get enough uh, how were you able to accomplish that? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to say this first, uh, just okay. so for kind of this groundwork. Um, to, to understand something, you have to understand about abuse first is it's slow. Um, it creeps in, in, in these really small steps, and it, it builds up over time. And then suddenly, you know, it's like all of a sudden you find yourself in this situation that you would never, ever would have allowed happen to to have happened if you just if it had just jumped out at you in the beginning. Um, you know, it's kind of like water falling on a rock, you know, for so long that it finally right. cracks. And, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I hate to put it this way, but it's also a bit like training a dog. You know, when, when a dog does something that pleases the owner, they, they get a treat. And when the dog does something wrong, they get a smack on the nose or a sharp retort from the owner um, until the dog is trained to do what the owner wants without question. And, and, and abusers are very similar. You know, the, in the beginning of a relationship, when, when a person, you know, when the victim is, is doing good, they'll get flowers and nice dinners out. And, but if the abuser is unhappy, it might be, you know, unkind words or a mild swat. But, but once they know that they can get away with it, that mild swat eventually becomes a smack and the unkind words turn into harsh criticisms. And from there, it just escalates. And as time goes on, the abuse becomes more aggressive and the words become more brutal and making the abuser happy becomes harder and make, making the victim work harder, you know, to be rewarded. And, and then if the victim seems about to bolt, then comes apologies and the pleas and the promises, I'll never do that again. I swear it's never going to happen. But they will. You know, they'll start right back at a point where the victim didn't object, and then it moves forward again. You know, because the cycle only – because once the cycle has started, you know, it only ends in one of two ways. Either the victim leaves – or they die, and I died, and then I left. You know, um, which sad. I mean, that's that's how it happened. Um, I mean, one night my my husband worked himself up into this really uncontrollable rage, um, above and beyond anything prior to this, and he kept getting angrier by the minute, and he was stomping around and yelling, and and he turned on me and he grabbed me and he threw me to the ground and he started choking me, and um, and I and I struggled and I kicked. But he was so much stronger than I was, and, and, and I couldn't stop him, and I couldn't breathe, and, and the world dimmed, and, and, and then there was just nothing, and the whole world went away, and it was, I don't know, I, I just, it, there was nothing. Um, at some point later, I, I came back to myself, and I don't know how long, you know, I had been gone, but when my eyes were finally able to focus again, you know, Nev, my husband, was, was kneeling above me. 
and staring straight down at me. And, and when he saw me looking back, you know, he kind of sat back and he looked me right in the eye and he goes, I let you live. And I, I don't know why, but I do know this. Every breath you take from this moment forward is a gift from me. And then he got wow. up and he walked out of the house. You know, I mean, and that 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 has had a profound effect on my life as well because he meant it. He meant that every breath, and in in a way, that's true, because he could have completely ended everything for me. I mean, my life could have stopped when I was 20 years old. And um, anyway, I uh, when I, I was able to get up and and I I called my best friend from high school and her husband. Um, they were living in Oklahoma at the time and. It was only a few states from where we were at, and her husband was military. But uh, I told him what happened, and he was going on maneuvers, so he couldn't do anything. But they ended up calling my mom, and a few days later, uh, she showed up and acting like it was a regular visit because at that point, my mom kind of had her life together, and she was uh, doing a lot of traveling for a company. And so she had stopped by Phoenix on more than one occasion, just kind of, oh, hey, I happen to be in the area. And so it didn't really draw any suspicions. And um, But that night, as soon as Nev left for work, because he worked overnight, we packed up 10 boxes and two suitcases, and we left in the middle of the night. And um, honestly, I have never been more terrified in my life. I, I really haven't. But uh, but we got out, me and, and, and my sons, and we got we got out, and we, we came back to Quincy. Well, I'm just glad that you survived that, because uh really sounds like it was... Uh, yeah, yeah, that that was uh, very scary. Now, uh, yeah. after going through that and getting out of that abusive relationship, you were able to put your life back together. Now, how did you do that? Did you have some help, or uh, how was how was uh, how were you able to accomplish that? <laughs> okay, all right. This is going to sound like I'm making this up, but I, I swear this is. A true story. It was an infomercial. An infomercial saved my life. An um, infomercial. <laughs> an infomercial. I swear. I, I had been to counseling. I did. I, I tried the traditional stuff. I went to counseling, and I, I didn't. And counseling was really a lot different back then. Right now, it's a lot more supportive. Okay, so I don't want anyone right now to get to get the wrong idea. But you have to remember, this was over 25 years ago. All right, so. You know, abuse victims were not looked at the same way they are right now. So the, the advice that they had given me was, oh, just ignore everything that's happened and, and go back to where you were right before the abuse and just go back to who you were. And, and the problem was is I, I, didn't, I didn't really remember who that person was anymore, and, and I didn't even know if I wanted to go back to being that person because considering the choices that person had made, it had put me in a lot of trouble and got me in a really terrible place. So – you know, I, I didn't want to do that. And so for a while I just kind of flailed around and I was depressed and I was angry and I was scared. And, um, and most of all, honestly, I, I was lonely um, because I didn't know how to interact with people anymore. Uh, my, my ex had so shut me off from the entire world, my friends, my family, our, our neighbors, that and I had almost no I, – I didn't have any person, people skills hardly anymore. I, I couldn't make a choice on, on what to order from a menu because I had not been allowed to make a choice like that for three years. And, um, you know, I didn't want to go anywhere with big groups and I didn't want to go anywhere that I couldn't see the exit. And, and men in general made me feel very uncomfortable. And, and I had a lot of male friends, 
you know, growing up and, you know, good close friends and, and even them, I, I, I was scared and I would kind of slink away from them and, and I was, and then I would feel bad about it because it, it wasn't them. It was me. I mean, it was me. Absolutely. And, and it's put a, a, a strain on all my friendships and, and I didn't know how to fix it. So anyway, okay. So how this infomercial changed my life. Um, Along with everything else, I had terrible insomnia. And, and late one night, I was laying on the couch, unable to sleep. And I only had two channels, so woo, two whole channels to choose from. Um, <laughs> it, it was just, I just wanted some silence or something to break up the silence. I mean, because it was very oppressive. I was, it was dark. I was alone. My two sons were asleep. And, and I just needed to hear human voices. And so I'm laying there staring at the ceiling, and when all of a sudden this insanely cheerful woman comes on, and, and she's talking about her fitness program, and then suddenly in the middle of her pitch, she stopped and, and looked straight out at the camera and said, when my husband divorced me, all I did was sit on the couch, cry, eat ice cream, and plot my husband's death. And man, I sat up, and I looked at the TV. <laughs> I mean, she had my attention. And she went on and she's like, and then one day I decided I was either going to spend the rest of my life letting his memory control my life, making me miserable, or I could get up and do something about it. And it was like someone flipped this light on in a dark room because I knew she was right. I, I needed to get up and I needed to do something about my life because I didn't want to sit miserable on my couch, cry and plot Nev's death anymore because I, I had been, you know, it was in my head, it was there. <laughs> You know, and uh, so, you know, and and honestly, I really don't know why this fitness happy woman connected to so much for me or, you know, or why her words had stirred me when everything else had just left me very unmoved. But it might have been her cheerful smile as she talked about her husband's demise, you know, her bright, confident attitude as she talked about changing her life for the better. You know, it might have been her gleeful happiness about how much she hated her ex. But I'm here to tell you. It changed my life. I didn't buy the video, by the way. I just, it was just, all right, just letting you know. But there I was. I mean, it was in the middle of the night, and, and I had this epiphany. I mean, I could spend the rest of my life miserable, or I could do something about it. I, I didn't have to sit around waiting for time to heal all wounds. I didn't have to go back to being the person I used to be. You know, I could, I could change my life. I didn't have to wait for life to change me. And, and I could become whoever I wanted to be, and, and, and it was this really powerful realization. I didn't have to conform to other people's expectations of who I was supposed to be. I could literally be whoever I wanted. I just had to believe enough in myself to want to put in the hard work. And, baby, it's been hard. <laughs> it was a lot of hard work. Okay, and, and I won't. I will never lie about that. It it was grueling at times. And, and there were times that I would get tired of trying and I would just kind of let life roll all over me and, you know, and just give up and say, whatever, I don't care anymore. But, the, but then I would just, I'd have this moment where I would remember back to that insanely happy woman and, and I would remind myself, you know, I can be whoever I choose to be. And, and then I'd go back and I'd pull myself up and dust myself off and go, okay, okay, I can do this. You know, and, and, and I'd start working on myself again, you know, and, and turning myself into someone that I, I, I truly liked. And, and, and it's a work in progress, and, and I'll probably be working on me for the rest of my life. But you know what? That's okay because I know in the end I'm worth it. I'm worth that effort. Okay. So, yeah, it was an infomercial. <laughs> <laughs> sad, wow, that's, that's, sad but that's true. 
really interesting. <laughs> but you know that it's amazing the way the the mind works, and sometimes what triggers you so that uh, you know you really zero in and focus in on things, and it makes sense for you. But uh, mm-hmm. that's that's really interesting. Now, if you just tuned <laughs> in, uh, this is Donnell Edwards' viewpoints, and we are discussing surviving foster care and domestic violence and how it changed my life for the better with our guest, Miss Lisa Orban, who is an independent writer and people's advocate. Uh, you no doubt mm-hmm. have an opinion about our topic, and your viewpoint matters. So call us now at 563-999-3660. That number again is 563 563- Nine 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 three six six zero. We would love to hear your viewpoint or answer your question. When we return, mm-hmm. we will discuss putting your life back together after going through an abusive relationship and finding true love. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong. In 50 feet, turn left. Why are you driving so slowly? After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in .1 miles. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Having trouble finding Connor's middle school? Would you like directions? No. Why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Finding lowest airfare to Istanbul. No, I'm, I'm tired of fighting with him over homework. Home, walk, restaurant, need a review? No, I need help. He's very smart, but his mind wanders. He's disorganized. I think I understand. Oh, good. Finding best potatoes for french fries. No! Russet, fingerling, Yukon gold. Why don't you understand me? Sorry, I was trying to show how Connor feels every day. Frustrating, isn't it? Redirecting to understood.org. For the one in five kids with learning and attention issues, this is what life can feel like. Explore understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues designed to help your child thrive in school and in life. Understood.org, because understanding is everything. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. Listening to 
The CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong. Welcome back to Donnell Edwards Viewpoints. Tonight's discussion is surviving foster care and domestic violence and how it changed my life for the better. And our guest is Miss Lisa Orban, independent writer and people's advocate. Now, Lisa, uh, mm-hmm. statistics show that most uh, people who go through the foster care system uh, do not usually go to college. And you were able to not only go to college, but to be a college graduate and to get an associate degree in psychology. So mm-hmm. how did you beat, how did you beat the odds? Luck and determination. <laughs> um, when I was still in high school, I'd been an honor student. I scored um, very, very high on the ACTs and I had earned a full scholarship to the university of Arizona. Um, unfortunately, um, my, Nev, my ex-husband, dashed all those hopes shortly after um, moving out to Phoenix by contacting the university and informing them that I was no longer interested in attending. And unfortunately, by the time I found out about it, it was too late. The scholarship had already been given to somebody else. Mm. Um, Yeah, I know. But I never gave up on the stream of going to college. And so when I first came back to Quincy, you know, after my disastrous marriage, you know, I, I had worked the series of fast food jobs, you know, um, but honestly, I wanted more for my kids um, than living hand to mouth all the time. And, and I wanted to give them and myself a better life than that. So I applied to my local college, John Wood, and I was accepted. And I was able to receive grants and scholarships while I went there. And, and I graduated with high honors um, without any additional student debt, which was very nice. Uh, quick side note on this whole story. I did actually attempt to earn a trade school degree as a legal aid while I was in Phoenix, but the school lost its accreditation and was closed down before I could finish. Um, And it turned out that I still owed the money for the student loan that I had taken out, um, and I just paid that off seven years ago, and I had a party about it. Uh, Believe it or not, I paid back almost $30,000 on a on a student loan that it was initially for four thousand for a school that lost its accreditation during the time I took that student loan out. Uh, so. I have heard, yeah, <laughs> heard stories like that before. That's, that's mm-hmm. really sad. Yeah, uh, but, but I uh, did. I I did go to yeah. college and and I got my degree in psychology. I'm quite proud of myself. <laughs> you should be. Now uh, you admit, speaking about relationships, uh, you admit that you have made some horrible relationship mistakes, and those are your words, uh, mm-hmm. because of the abusive relationship you were in. Can you explain, uh, in your case, how your judgment had, was clouded as a result of the abuse? Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's this fine line between what's considered a healthy relationship and an abusive one. And if you don't have any experience in what a healthy relationship should be, it's, it is honestly very hard to know the difference, I mean, at least at first. And I didn't have good role models growing up. And, and foster care had done its work trying to stamp out any thought of, of me, you know, of me being considered a person of value. And 
sadly, even culture, you know, is playing its part. Even now, you know, twisting what it means to be in a healthy relationship is, you know, they kind of run back and forth between the, the Prince Charming icon and, and Fifty Shades of Grey. And, and neither one of those is, is anything close to what a, you know, a stable and healthy relationship should be like. But if you've never experienced it, you've never seen it, you don't know. You know, um, and then, you know, add into it that, you know, I, I did experience this, this abusive relationship. And, and for me, that, that made that line become even more blurred, you know, because you, you want to be loved and, and cherished and valued. But then deep down inside, you, you don't really know if you're worthwhile enough to deserve to be treated that way. You know, so any small kindness or consideration is seen as something bigger and, and, and more significant than it is because it is so much better than, than what you experienced before, you know, because you have been treated as worthless. And so then any acknowledgement of worth, you know, kind of throws that lifeline out to that person. And they may not even even be a good person, but they are at least better than anything, you know, that I had had before. And so by comparison to what I'd endured, you know, they, they were knights in shining armor, you know, even when it turned out they were just basically, you know, thinly layered in tinfoil. Um, and it took a long time in a lot of questionable relationships, unfortunately, you know, to, for me to find my worth again as, as this whole person you know, and, and really be able to recognize the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy relationship. You know, it, it was just this, it, it, it was, it was hard. <laughs> just because you don't know what to, you don't right. know what to base it on, you know, basically right. in a nutshell. Now we, we talked about a lot of the bad things that, that happened in your life, some really traumatic. Uh, so let's talk about some of the the good things now. Uh, okay. You were blessed to find the love of your life, as you say. Uh, so, so tell us how you felt finding true love after all that you had been through. I, how do you describe happiness? <laughs> you know, or or you know, or contentment in in a relationship that didn't require you to completely compromise the person you are to be with the person you're with, and and. It was that and, and, and so much more. Um, I first met Billy in, in 1985, guys. Okay, I was 15 years old. Um, and there's this very long and convoluted story about, you know, how we first met and, and, and what broke us up and what got us back together. I mean, there's, this, there's a lot of twists and turns, and there were some mistakes, honestly, made by, by both of us along the way. But, uh, but in 2003, um, we randomly ran, in, ran into each other at a grocery store. And three months later, we were married. <laughs> uh, and oh. we just, we just, yeah, it's true. Um, but we, we just fit each other. I mean, we, we completed each other. And, and, and honestly, we were so perfect together. I mean, it made our friends gag. And, and we became <laughs> the butt of all these jokes um, just because we were just so insufferably happy, you know. <laughs> And I mean, and he was this great guy. He was hardworking, and he was loving, and he was a good father. Um, you know, he was kind and gentle, and um, great sense of humor. Um, I mean, he had his flaws. He was terrible with money, and he was terrible with planning things out in advance. Um, you know, which fortunately for him, I'm excellent with money and excellent at planning. And um, and together, we were just able to to give ourselves 
a better life than either one of us had ever known before. You know, I was good at networking and making friends, and I used those skills to help him advance at work, and he knew I loved my house, and I have this, yeah, I have unconditional love for my house. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. Um, but it needed a lot of work. And so he dug in and, and helped me renovate my house and restore it into something that we both loved. And, I mean, we just complimented each other in every way. It, was, uh, it wasn't a struggle to be with him. And, and every day was a good day, you know, if we were together. And it was a good life. It was a very good life. That's so beautiful. Now, Lisa, does that story have a happy ending? No. Unfortunately, it does not. <laughs> okay. Tell us what no. happened. Um, war, the Iraq war. Okay. My husband was a soldier, and um, while he was in Iraq, his Humvee ran over two IEDs. And um, in that moment, the person I loved died. Um, he, he lived. I mean, his body lived, um, but he suffered from a traumatic brain injury. And um, everything that had made him the man that I loved died while this new person came to life inside of him. I, I, I used to call it wearing an Edgar suit from the Men in Black movie when the bug comes in and takes over poor Edgar. It was like that. Um, and and I, don't, I don't think there are any words to describe this kind of loss and, and to, to mourn a person who is still alive. But I'm, I am here to tell you it is, it is brutal. Um, it is awful. And, and I would never, not on my worst enemy, would I ever wish that on anyone. Um, I, I tried, you know, trying to connect to, to someone who in almost every way, in every aspect was different from the Billy I had fallen in love with. And, and, and to be truthful, this was someone that I was even a little scared of. He was darker and meaner and not as caring, and he didn't he didn't have a sense of humor, this person who came back. Um, but I had made a promise to my husband before he had left for war that I would not ever leave him or, or abandon him if he was injured in the war. And, um, and I kept my promise until the day he left me a little over five years later after that. Okay. So. Okay. Now, you have uh, obviously been through a lot in, in, in your life, uh, things that would have broken most of us. So after going through all of uh, the things that you've experienced, a, a lot of people would have become overcome with depression or they would be hateful and have a sense of entitlement. So why has your response to the disappointments and tragedies in your life been just the opposite and caused you to reach out to help others? Uh Honestly, at every low point in my life, there has always been someone who has held out their hand and said, I'll help you back up. Um, when I was growing up, my friends were there with their unconditional support, and, I mean, they were ready anytime. They would drop everything if I called and said I needed them. Um, when I was placed in foster care, my, my mother, Eula, said, you know, it's okay now. You're safe with me, and, and she meant it for that entire time that I was with her. Um, when I moved to Phoenix, um, the apartment that I was supposed to move into with Cindy fell through, and we thought we were going to end up being homeless, and uh, Doug stepped forward and told us we could stay with him until we could find our own place. Um, late one night, um, not long after that, three men cornered me and Cindy with no good intentions. 
um, in the middle of the night at a uh, at a laundromat that we were alone in. And um, three random strangers saw what was happening, and, and they came to our rescue. Um, and Sean, one of the three guys, stayed with us until we finished our laundry to make sure we were safe. You know, Leanne and Vern gave me a home when I came back to Quincy and helped me find some direction after leaving Nev. A counselor at the college went out of her way um, to make sure that I, I could graduate by arranging grants and work-study jobs for me so I, I could continue in, in, to get my degree. You know, a friend, of, uh, the father of a friend of mine loaned me $500 to close the gap so I could buy my home when I came up short. A complete stranger I had never met read my first indie book and then contacted me and offered to professionally edit it with, for no charge because after reading it, he, he felt that he believed in me and, and, and in the story that I was telling. And, and there's just – and so many others. And, and I'm here because other people saw me and decided I was worth their effort and how could I do any less when so many others have helped me? I mean, no one in this world makes it completely on their own. I mean, somewhere along the way in everyone's life, someone said, here, you know, let, let me help. And, and, I'm sh- and that's made all the difference between success and failure. And I'm, paying it, and I'm paying forward every kindness that's ever been done to me, you know, basically one person at a time. And I'm not sure why my response is different than most people. I mean, maybe it's because, you know, once you've lost everything, you know, it's easier to recognize the small kindnesses, you know, or have a greater appreciation for, you know, life's little joys or, you know, maybe my brush with death made me appreciate how precious and, and fragile life is, you know, but I know, I, I know deep down inside that there is, you know, there's always good if you look for it. And, and sometimes good things come from even bad situations, you know, you learn a lesson, you know, you gain new insights or, or a new skill or a new beginning opens up because of it. And, 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 I, and I even know that every kindness paid forward makes the world a little better in some way, you know, if it's only, even if it's just for one person, you know, and I, I think it's important to remember the small things and be grateful for them. And, and I am, I am grateful. For every breath I take, you know, for every sunrise, for every sunset, I'm, I'm grateful. And, and I think that's what makes the difference. I appreciate it. Okay. Now, uh, in, in watching your YouTube video, uh, some of the, the people that you have helped over the years voice their love and appreciation for you. But w- would, would you tell us about uh, where some of these, these, these people come from? Because... Uh, they have uh, very, very backgrounds, and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any difference to you if somebody needs help. Uh, you help them, no time limits as far as how long they can stay. So you know, just tell, tell the listeners more about uh, your process and, and how you uh, take people in and help them. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. To begin with, it, I did not intentionally – this was not how I had – planned out my life. I planned out everything. This was not planned. Um, I mean, occasionally, you know, uh, my, for most of my adult life, you know, I, I have taken in people on occasion. Um, Sean, the guy who rescued us in the middle of the night, turned out he was a homeless guy. And so I left my door, you know, my door was always open to him if he wanted a meal or, you know, a, sh- a hot shower or a bed to sleep in whenever he wanted. And um, while I was still in Phoenix, I was an apartment manager, and I would occasionally um, take in homeless people when I had an empty apartment and, you know, kind of help them out and while they helped me out around the place. And, uh, you know, so and throughout the years, you know, we've all, you know, you let your friend crash on the couch and, and stuff. But um, 
as my kids got older, I, I started helping out their friends, and, and that's, that's when it snowballed. Um, it started with this girl named Skye. Uh, her parents kicked her out at 17. Um, they were strung out from drugs, and they abandoned her. Um, and I took her in for her entire senior year, and she was able to graduate. Um, and she was able to go out into the world with confidence. And then not long after that, there was a 17-year-old boy who was left abandoned at a gas station with no money and no place to go, who I took in and, and, and cared for until he left for the military when he turned 18. And, and then others just started showing up, these young 17 to 20-somethings, you know, who for whatever reason couldn't make it, all, make it on their own. And then, and then they started adding people that they knew and they're bringing them to my home. And, and, hey, Lisa, there's this guy, you know, he's a really great guy. You need to help him out. And, you know, so for each person that left, you know, they would, like, find their replacement almost and um, for someone else that needed help. And, and then from there, you know, I, I started taking in the occasional ex-con who would be brought to me by someone else who had been there in the past, and, and then a few vets, and the occasional pregnant woman who needed help because, you know, they, they, they couldn't work during the, at the end of their pregnancy, and they couldn't afford, you know, they could, didn't have money, and they didn't get paid time off, you know, and they lost their place, and so I, I took them in, and, you know, sometimes I, it was entire families because one of the parents lost their job, and they, they couldn't make it anymore, and, and the thing of it is, is these guys may be strangers in the beginning, but, you know, they were always brought in by someone, you know, that I knew or someone who had lived with me before, and they would vouch for them. And, um, you know, and every once in a while, you know, it didn't work out for, for whatever reason, because, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. Um, but honestly, considering I've taken in hundreds, I mean, high hundreds, and only had a problem with a handful, I mean, less than 10, you know, to me, that, that's worth it. And, you know, and, and I'm never scared of these guys that come into my house. And, and if I was, I wouldn't take them in. Um, and I also know <laughs> that the guys in my house would, would jump to my defense if I was ever threatened by anybody. I mean, they, they would, if anyone ever threatened me, they'd get bounced out of this house in the blink of an eye and, you know, never be, never darken my doorstep again. I mean, they just wouldn't, you know. Um, so, I mean, and, <laughs> the best description I have for, my house right now is um, I'm kind of like a benign socialist dictator. Uh, <laughs> I am the absolute ruler of my house. Make no mistake about it. I am the ruler, um, and I make the rules we live by, which are two. You only have two rules in my house. No, rule number one, don't set my house on fire. That is rule number one, <laughs> and, and there's a reason for that. And rule number two, uh, play nice with everyone else that lives here. Other than that, everyone's free to live their life and do do their thing and be who they are. And if it does happen, you know, that there's some kind of a conflict, I am the final say on how it's dealt with. And and truthfully, that rarely happens. I treat each person, you know, with care and respect. And, and like Eula said to me, everyone gets a clean straight or clean slate <laughs> when they walk <laughs> through my door. And, okay. and honestly, and, you know, and I'm and I'm not that that scared me person, you know, that ran away from an abusive relationship, you know, 30 years ago. So, you know, it, it's easy for me to 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 keep and maintain control in my house. So I, I'm never worried about it. Okay. Now, uh, when when you take a look at uh, what's happened with your life, what final thoughts do you have for our listeners? who may have experienced some adversity uh, in their lives 
that will help them uh, prevent them from uh, what and encourage them rather to reach out and, and, and help help other people instead of uh, going up into their shell and uh, not not helping others. You know, um, most of everything that is wrong in our world right now, um, it's not random. You know, it, it's basically it's caused by people not caring about what happens to each other. You know, when we forget our humanity and we turn a blind eye to those in need and, and then the desperate act out in self-preservation because the desire not to starve is greater than the passive alternative. And... You know, we we need to start caring more about each other. Um, we need to start thinking about one another as not a means to an end or an obstacle in the way or as a, you know, as an inanimate object. You know, we need to really start seeing people again and recognizing our humanity in each other, you know, I, we need to be kind to each other. You know, you don't have to do as I've done and, and, and open your home to strangers, you know, but it it doesn't take any effort to say a kind word or, or give a small bit of recognition to the person, you know, who, who makes your coffee or is the cashier at the gas station, you know, and we need to notice people. I mean, really see them and, and, and be generous with your compliments and, and, and a smile um, because that 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 compliment that smile that that kind word can can make all the difference in somebody's day it it doesn't take a lot to change the world it just takes small acts and we can all do that absolutely lisa thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences with us this evening they're truly a mm-hmm. source of encouragement and you are an outstanding example uh, for all of us, and we wish you continued success in your work. Now, tell our listeners how they may contact you to find out more about your your work and also how they can get your books. All right. Um, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter, at Lisa Orban Author. Um, from there, you can find my website and you know everything else. Uh, my books are readily available on Amazon, uh, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, uh, pretty much all the major online places. So if you put in, um, you know, uh, It'll Feel Better When It Quits Hurting, that's me by Lisa Orban, uh, or Wine Comes in Six Packs, or any of my books, you'll be able to find them. You can do a Google search. I'm Googleable. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. I'm pretty much everywhere. <laughs> okay, well, Lisa, thank you so much. We really do appreciate you sharing with us, and uh, has really been a source of encouragement to know that uh, we still have humanitarian people in the world like yourself. So, thank you so much, and much continued success to you. Uh, we thank also you. Uh, thank you. Uh, we also thank you, our listening audience, for being with us this evening out there in CWR Nation, and. We want to invite you to join us again next Monday at 6.30 p.m. Central for a very special program that was scheduled during Financial Literacy Month in April, and our guest had an emergency and had to cancel. So we rescheduled that program 
for next Monday, May 21st at 6.30 p.m. And we will be discussing an introduction to investing, what you need to know to become a successful investor with our special guest, Mr. Anmal Singh, who is a financial trader, entrepreneur, and success coach. So be sure to join us to learn about investing in the stock market. Tonight's uh, program will be available on demand tomorrow at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and will soon be available on Amazon Alexa. Now, don't forget to listen to all of our great programs on the CWR Talk Network, including the Lionel Shipman Shape Your Finances show tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. and eight, uh, That's Central Time at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And check the schedule at our website for all of our programs. And that's under the schedule tab at our website, cwrtalknetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to Donald Edwards' Viewpoints. Good night. And don't forget, your viewpoint matters. So have a great evening. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag. One million strong.